know what to expect. I remember when, um, uh, when, when I first started or was praying and had, had decided to, uh, to, to launch, uh, Crossroads, I, there were three, uh, church plants, uh, in the area. Oh, we, yeah, we need to, like Corey said, you don't need to see two of me. He, um, so there, there were three church plants, and none of them are, are long ago. They they went away. By the way, just uh, the Lord has blessed this congregation. The average church plant lasts two and a half years. And what I mean by church plant is not a not a plant that a church you know sends off three hundred people, but you know starting starting a church from scratch, so to speak, two and a half years. And uh, so God has been good to us, and uh, through you, God has been good to us. But but I met with them, and I and and the reason I met with them is I wanted to know kind of what to expect, um, you know, from the standpoint, what are the landmines that that I need to look out for, and because um, I, I didn't I didn't know what to expect at all, and it was very helpful, just you know, the, the, for people that were in the process of doing it, some of which the things certainly came true here, many of which were not were not the case with us. Uh, all the negative stuff never happened here that that, that they happened that happened there, uh, but it was not. It was just there was something about just kind of knowing a little bit about what to expect. Even though every church is different, every setting is different, it was just it just was very helpful to know kind of what to expect. Certainly in the military, <laughs> before you send you know soldiers out for battle, you want to give them a briefing. You want you want them to know a little bit of what, about what to expect. Um, the, the little reading I've done on Vietnam, uh, a lot of that was we, it was, we'd never fought a war like that before. We didn't know what to expect. Or it turns out it wasn't what we expected, perhaps. I know that it was a lot more than that, but. So, so whenever you're given an assignment, whenever you're given a mission, it's always really helpful to know what to expect. Get, get some idea of, uh, of what you can expect. Um, in Mark chapter 3, if you remember last week, we saw that he had chosen the 12. And then in, in verse 14, he said he appointed them and that they might be with him and they, that they, he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So he is giving them authority. He's getting ready to send them out. And now in, in chapter 4, Mark, through the way that he crafts this chapter, um, Jesus uh, is going to tell them what they can expect. He's called them to a mission, and now he's going to tell them, here's what you can expect. Now the question is, expect in terms of what? Well, again, in verse 14, uh, he said he might call them out to preach. To preach what? You, this is audience participation. The gospel. Specifically at this time, probably very much what Jesus preached. And what did Jesus preach? Look at chapter 1, verse 15. It's called, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus preached and taught the kingdom of God. Remember, this was, this was somewhat still a transitional period. Jesus had not yet died on the cross. Obviously, he had not yet rose, you know, risen again and ascended to the Father. So this was 
preaching of the kingdom of God that basically, as we saw in John chapter 5, verse 24, believe in me, which really is the gospel. Well, the question is, what is the kingdom of God? Because this is going to be very important for the rest of this gospel and, is, and in fact, very important for us too. What, do, what did Jesus mean when he preached the kingdom of God? Well, there are two, at least two different forms of kingdom of God when we think about it. The first is what we would call, I guess you'd call a sovereign providential kingdom of God. This is the fact that God reigns now. We're not waiting for a future reign of Christ. We're not waiting for a future reign of God. God reigns as king in this kingdom right now. Um, keep your marker here and turn, if you would, to Psalm chapter 89. Psalm 89. So we're going to go on a brief excursus here. Um, I think it's important that we understand the kingdom of God. Psalm 89.11. The heavens, and by the way, I'm reading from the old New American Standard this morning, uh, which retains the these and the thines. The heavens are thine. The earth also is thine. The world and all it contains. This is God's kingdom. The earth and all the, 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 the whole universe is God's kingdom. There, there's there's a, a lot of teaching going out there that, that, that Satan, this is Satan's world. This is not Satan's world. This is God's world. He is king. He is sovereign over his world. And anything Satan does, he does only through God's permission. Psalm 103. Turn to Psalm 103. One hundred three nineteen. The Lord has established His throne. This is kingdom language. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Psalm one forty five. Turn to Psalm one forty five. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall give thanks to thee, O Lord, and thy godly ones shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men thy mighty acts and the glory, the majesty of thy kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endures through all generations. God, this world, all of this creation, is the kingdom belonging to God. This is his kingdom. He reigns as king in a sovereign, in a providential sense. But there is probably, a well, there is a, another more specific sense that Jesus probably had in mind when he talked about preaching the kingdom of God. And this is what I would call the redemptive or spiritual reign. Spiritual kingdom of God. Turn back, if you would, to your, new, to your New Testament and turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For he delivered us from the domain or the kingdom 
He delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is a redemptive kingdom. This is the rule and reign of Christ in the lives of His people. And we read earlier, I read in our prayer, Matthew 28, 82-20, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me Therefore, go and make disciples. That's spiritual authority. That's spiritual kingdom. There is, listen, there is no gap in God's kingdom. We're not waiting for some future kingdom. There is no parentheses. There's no postponement. There's no plan B. All is God's kingdom, either in a sovereign, providential way, but more specifically, And Jesus preached a redemptive spiritual kingdom to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of His Son. The redemptive rule and reign of Christ in the lives of His people. And so this is what they would preach. This is what they were going to call people to. And Jesus wants them to know what can they expect. Mark chapter 4 he answers, I think, that question in, in two ways. He, he gives them what they can expect in terms of how people are going to respond. Now, those of us who, uh, at Wednesday night Bible study, we just finished going through Ezekiel. What did God tell Ezekiel he could expect? God, God called Ezekiel. He had this, uh, the story had this, this grand vision of the glory of God in this, this, these four wheels and they're all turning and spinning and just this, this unbelievable vision of the glory of God. And he calls Ezekiel to go and to preach and to prophesy uh, to, 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 the, to Israel, to, to the exiles, but also to Jerusalem. And what did God say to Ezekiel? They're not going to listen to you. <laughs> no one's going no to walk the aisle. Uh, no one's going to believe. They're not even going to listen to you. So God told Ezekiel what he could expect. And he said, they're not going to listen to you. Well, Jesus tells his disciples, the response is going to be mixed. You can expect a mixed response. Mark chapter 4. And he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very great multitude gathered to him. And he, he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow, and it came about that as he was sowing, Some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. The other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Another seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. And other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then one, in, in this, one of the very few times that we have recorded, Jesus interprets this parable for us. Look now with me, beginning in verse 15, or 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? Now he's going to interpret this parable for him. The sower sows the word. So what is the seed? The seed is the word, okay? So that's the, that's the connection. And 
These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which was sown in them. Okay, What soil was that? The path. So the image was seed fell on the path and birds came and now he's interpreting that as what? That Satan comes and takes away the word which was sown in them. And in a similar way, these are the ones in whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when, a, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And this is the rocky place. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who heard the word and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in. And, and this word choke, by the way, this word choke is the very same word used in verse 1 when it talked about the whole crowd was pressing in on him and closing in on him. Same word. When the crowds pressed and closed in, this is the same word. The, 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 the thorns pressed in and closed um, the, the, the word through the worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches and desire for other things. Choke the word, it becomes unfruitful. Those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. They hear the word and they accept it and they bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Um, four different responses that Jesus lists. The first one is the path. It's sown on the path and Satan comes and snatches the word. The images of these birds that would come and, and, and grab the seed that, that was on the, on the path and take it away. We're not really sure how, how does this play into unbelief. Uh, in other words, was this the reason why they, un, they, they, they didn't believe the gospel, that people don't believe the gospel? Or was it a result of them not believing the gospel and therefore Satan snatched it away? I tend to, I tend to lean maybe towards the second one. That, 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 that because the path was so hard, there was no reception, there was no welcoming of the word, and, and therefore Satan snatches it away. The second one is the fair weather followers, right? That this is where they had no depth. Um, there, there was no, it, it never really penetrated deep. And, and when it said when persecution arose or tribulation, uh, they give up. In fact, it says they... They fall away or they stumble. You can expect that, disciples. You can expect to see that, that kind of response. The third, and maybe even worse, are the thorns. And he talks about what the thorns are. He says the thorns are the worries of the world, the deceitful of wealth of deceitfulness of riches, and the all the other things of this world. Choke out the word. And becomes unfruitful. I, I think of Demas. Remember Demas who traveled with Paul. We read at the end of Second uh, Timothy that Demas, having loved this present world, went back to Thessalonica and departed from Paul. The last one was the good soil. These are the fruitful people. And listen again. Those are the ones whom the seed was sowed. They hear the word and they accept it. They hear it. They welcome it. 
So Jesus says to them, when you go out, you're going to expect a, a variety of responses. Now the question is, and, and really the debate in theological circles is, uh, do these four soils all represent, well, uh, with the exception of number, number four, the good soil, do the first three represent unbelievers? Are these people who never really believed? Or were they believers who fell away? Um, believers or unbelievers? Here's, here's what I think. One in, Soil one, which is what? The path. And soil four, which is the good one. Those seem really clear to me. Because number the first soil, they never had the word at all. It was snatched away before it ever took root. There was no reception whatsoever. Number four, obviously, represents true believers. The question is, what about two and three? What about the shallow soil? Let's read the description again. Verse 17, they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, that's an important phrase, because of the word, not because they're just being goof, goofy. Immediately they fall away. They stumble. The thorns. They hear the word, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The question is, do these represent true believers? And I bet, I bet if I took a poll, I don't see any hands, but if I took a poll, there'd be mixed, there'd probably be, there'd probably be mixed response. Here's the answer, I think. I'm not sure. There's real doubt as to whether these, these two soils, what they represent, whether they really are believers or not. And isn't that the point? Isn't that the point that if you fall in one of these two categories, if a Christian falls or a professed Christian falls in one of these two categories, can they really with certainty say they know the Lord? I, I think it's ambiguous on purpose. I can't categorically say that they're not. But I can't categorically say that they are either. Man, who wants to live in that realm? Uh, I've often said one of the greatest, one of the best gifts you can give to your family is that when you pass away, they don't have to wonder where you are. They don't have to say, well, I, you know, I think Jim's in heaven. I don't know. It's interesting that if you look at each one of these faith, these fruitless, faithless hearts, all of them were influenced or associated with three different enemies. The hard heart was the devil. The shallow heart was the flesh. And the crowded, the crowded heart was the world, the, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of this world. And isn't this the three very same enemies that John talks about in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17? Jesus tells his disciples, you can expect a variety of responses. And I know that we can focus on the first three, but here's the exciting thing. Because God is sovereign, because God is sovereign in salvation, there will be those who respond. If, if, if he said, you, no one's going to listen to you, other than if you're an Old Testament prophet, what's the point? If really salvation is ultimately and finally and decisively in the hands of unbelievers, whoever would believe? How could we have any confidence that anyone will believe? But, but Jesus says there will be those who believe. And then the disciples say in verse 10, Jesus, why all these parables? 
Why all these parables? Uh, look, look with me at verse 10. As soon as he was alone, his followers along with the twelve began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables in order that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. So Jesus answers this question, why all these parables? Why are you speaking so cryptically? Why are you speaking so enigmatically? And Jesus says, really, there's two reasons. The first one is to conceal. Look again at verse 12. I speak in parables, and what's the first two words in verse 12? Or three, I guess you should say. In order that. Purpose. That indicates purpose. I speak in parables so that purposefully they may see but not perceive and hear and not understand. See, Jesus intentionally chose to speak enigmatically to conceal revelation from those who were not receptive to His Word. And we ought not to be ashamed of that. We ought not to be embarrassed about that. We ought not to feel bad about that. That, that Jesus spoke in parables in order that those who were truly not interested, they would say, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about, I'm, but I'm not interested. I'm not interested. He came to conceal so that, the language is clear, so that while seeing they, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. So it's to conceal. Just to conceal. And then in true Mark and fashion with this sandwiching, he continues again in verse 21. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought out to be put under a peck measure. This is Mark places this right after the, par- the interpretation of the parable of the soil. He said, a lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure or a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought uh, to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed nor has anything been secret, but that it should come to light. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure it shall be measured to you, and more shall be given you besides. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Verses 20 through 25, he says, Now the reason I give parables is also to reveal. Now look with me again. He says, You don't, you don't light a uh, you don't light a lamp. This would have been like a light bulb. You don't put install a, a light under your bed. No, though a light is meant to give light, to reveal. And, and he said, I have come to reveal. The heart of the Father, the heart of our Father, ultimately is to reveal. Is to reveal truth. To reveal the nat- his nature. So we have this simultaneous both concealing and and revealing. What's the difference? What makes the difference between concealing and revealing? Verse 24. Take care how you listen. By your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you, and more shall be given you besides. What does that mean? Verse 25 explains it. Whoever has, to him shall more be given, and whoever does not have, even what he shall be, even what he has shall be taken away from him. He's saying this. When you, when a person responds to the revelation that God gives them, they will be given more. If, however, they do not respond 
to the revelation God gives them. God will take it away from them. That, 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 that's, the, that's the essence of what Jesus is saying. You see, the, the, the issue is response. How many of you are aware of the, the, the parable of the talents? Matthew 25, parable of the talents? I, I, um, it, it's Matthew 25. I can't tell you how many times I've heard sermons on... Uh, <laughs> this is preached on um, Stewardship Sunday. Matthew 25, parable of the talents. You know the story. The, 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 uh, a man was about to go on a journey. He called his slaves and trusted his possessions to them. And to the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. Each one according to his own ability. And he goes on this journey. And the, the one who received the one talent uh, traded and he gained five more. The one who had received the two gained two more. He received the one, went away and dug, or you know, the five, the ten, five, and one. Verse 18, he dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts, and they went and settled. And, and the one that buried is in, in, in the dirt said, uh, um, verse 24, uh, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not, uh, where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went away and I hid your talent in the ground to see what you have is yours. But his master answered, said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew what I reap, where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed? See the seed, the, 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 the connection between the sower? Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given... And he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he, doesn't, what he does have shall be taken away. The very same language we see in Mark chapter 4 that we just read. And cast that worthless slave into outer darkness in that place that should be weeping and gnashing. Listen, this has nothing to do with money. This has to do with revelation. Beginning in verses 24 through 25, all of this is, is talking about the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's saying that when they reject him, even what they have, it is what you do with what has God revealed to you. How, do you. how do you respond to what God has revealed to you? It's, it, it's not the amount of revelation that is significant in a person's life. It's what they do with what they receive. So he says to disciples, you can expect a mixed response. Some will believe. Others won't. Number two, what about results? What, what, are, what kind of results can I expect? Mark, back to Mark chapter 4. He says, here's the results you can expect. Verse 26. And he was saying, the kingdom of God, here he is again, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts up and grows. How, how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops all by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. When the crop per, but when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Verse 30. How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed which, 
when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it's sown, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest in its shade. There are a couple of words in verses 26 through 32 that give us the second, the answer to what kind of results. The first one is found in verse, uh, where is it? Gets up, sprouts, uh, verse 27. He goes to bed at night, gets up, and the seed sprouts up and grows. Verse 32, when it is sown, it grows. So the answer is, what kind of results can you, can you expect is growth. You can expect growth. But he says, this growth is going to be inexplicable. The growth of the kingdom of God. Now, get out of your head the growth, numerical growth of a local church. Jesus is speaking of a broader picture here. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about Jesus' redemptive reign and rule in the lives of his people. He says, you, you can expect growth of the kingdom, but it'll be inexplicable. What does inexplicable mean? It, it, in a, in a, what's also ironic is that word is inexplicable. Um, it's incapable of being accounted for or explained. Something that's inexplicable, it's hard to account for to explain it. And that's the description we see in beginning verse 26. It, 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 the, the, the farmer plants the seed and, and then somehow it dies and it cracks open and, and perhaps we know a little bit more now than we did before. My son-in-law is a, a farmer. Uh, he grew up on a farm in Iowa. Um, his, his dad and uncle still farm. He still helps him farm. He wishes he had a farm. And uh, whenever we go out there, I ask him 8 million questions. He's sick of my questions. And uh, but one of the things I asked him, I said, you know, after you know, after a farmer plants all the seeds, what does he do? I mean, what? He goes, well, nothing. Fix your equipment. You know, pray for just the right amount of rain. So you can't have too much rain. You can't have too little. You know, some sunshine, not too much. You know, it's, it's just, he said, but basically, you're done. You, you mean there's nothing that you know? You you plant the seed, and then it's going to do. What it's going to do. It does its own thing. It's inexplicable. Now I'm sure that there are some. Uh, what would you call them? Ag. Ag people at Iowa State that can tell you exactly what happens to that seed. And what's that? Agronomist or whatever. But really, it's, a, it's inexplicable how you plant this seed and it becomes a big corn plant. He says that the growth of this kingdom is going to be inexplicable. And I look at the growth of the gospel and the kingdom around the world. It's inexplicable. It, it, it's like overnight, it, it, so to speak, it's just, it's just growing and, and moving and, and, and that there's going to be a, a time of harvest and it's almost, he's saying, almost beyond us. We cast the seed, and then it's just inexplicable how this thing grows. Our responsibilities do what? To sow, to plant the seed. But then inexplicably, it, 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 it just grows. Our responsibilities to sow, everything else is left up to God. Let, let, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> You don't have to turn there. Let me read it. First Corinthians chapter three. I can get there. Verse 
Verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And so, listen, all, all we do is we plant the seed. And what does that mean? To sow the word, what does that mean? We share the gospel. Then basically our job is done. In essence. Then the Holy Spirit takes over. Then that seed, the, the, the word is called the seed is implanted and it starts to germinate. And then we get into the parable of the soils. Is it going to be on the hard path? Is it going to be on the rocky place? It's going to be the thorny soil. We don't know. But we don't need to know. This, this growth is, is inexplicable, but our job is to simply cast the seed. Second of all, this growth is disproportionate. Mark chapter 4, it's disproportionate. Look in verse 30, he said it's like, a, it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds, and when it's planted, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Uh, what does disproportionate mean? First, we have inexplicable, which, which was you know, incapable of being accounted for or explained. What's disproportionate? Bigger than you expected. It, it's out of proportion to what you expect. It could, something disproportionate could be, it turned out to be smaller than what you expected, or it could be, it turned out to be bigger than you expected. It, it, it's, it's the opposite of proportionate, which is a comparative relationship between things regarding size, magnitude, and so forth. So he's saying that the growth of the kingdom is going to be like a mustard seed. It's going to be out of proportion to the sowing. So, so we plant a seed, we share the gospel in one person's life. And let's say that they're good soil and they respond and they trust in Christ. And now they raise, they get married and they raise a godly family and they have three believing children. And they get married and they have believing children and they have... This, 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 this exponential growth. Um, when I was in Campus Crusade for Christ, they, they, uh, they, uh, it's called Crew now, but it's called Campus Crusade for Christ, and they, they had this from Second Timothy two to spiritual multiplication, and they said that if you multiply yourself, uh, the, the power of exponential growth. So I lead two people to Christ, and they, each one of they, them lead them, each one of them they lead two people to Christ, so forth and so on. They, so they had this this graph of this exponential growth, um, and 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 they always showed this 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 uh, this tale about um, this peasant in India went to the king, and he served the king well, and the king said, "I'll give you whatever you want." He said, "I'll tell you what." He said, uh, I, I, "I there's a chessboard, and give me a grain of rice starting on the first square, and then double it each square." And the king thought that was a great deal. Just a grain of rice, that's all he did. Well, obviously, you know it's coming. Um, by the time of, of a chessboard, the, the, the amount of rice was 9 times 10 to the 18th power. And from what I understand, that's 9 with 18 zeros behind it. It was more grain than, than, than the, the entire country had. It was, it was the power of exponential growth. And I, that's exactly what I see in this world today. 
inexplicable exponential growth of the kingdom. I, I, I talk about it all the time, but the, the book Wind in the House of Islam, and I was telling Paul, you know, it seems like any book you write on missions these days is going to be outdated really quickly. Uh, just the just the inexplicable growth in, in Muslim countries. You're talking to Paul and and in, in southern Tanzania, the, the, the coast uh, where, where all, most of the Muslims are, just the, the, the growth of the, of the gospel around the globe. How do you explain that? You explain it, it's inexplicable, but it's, but it's disproportionate and exponential growth. I wonder what the disciples would think if they were alive today. Did the sea, what started off with 12 of them, has now become a global a global cause. And yeah, things in our world look really bad and things in our country look really bad. They've always been bad. But tell me, when in the, in the past, and in the, think about the history of the church, has there been conferences with tens of thousands of believers who meet together? Well, we're not, they're not meeting now. The Thrive Conference. Did, was that going on? Did, in, uh, 1700s Europe? No. So we can focus on, yeah, we, it looks like our, our whole, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket and, and some have a theological perspective that things are just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse and then Jesus is going to come bail us out. I, I look at, I look at these kinds of, these kind of texts and it's just, by the way, this sure seems like that. And sometimes I, I share, I share that sentiment. But, but, the gospel is growing in our world like a mustard seed. Think of Peru. The, the, the efforts of the coolies when, when they are long gone. The fruit that, that will be a result of their ministry. Where now they may not see anything. Or they may be... Well, I know there are times when the missionaries are frustrated because they don't see the fruit. They don't see the growth. It's hidden. It's like a mustard seed. It's like a seed that they've planted. And they don't yet see the growth. And they need to be encouraged because he said it's like a mustard seed. And it's going to, the growth is going to be inexplicable. Why would he, why would he tell his disciples this? He said, Here, here's the responses you can expect. It's going to be mixed. Maybe some are going to believe, some will reject you, some will reject the message, others will believe. You can expect growth, but it, that their growth is going to be inexplicable. At times, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to really see it. It's, it's for later on. And by the way, he says that, that, uh, in this parable, he said that it will become larger than all the garden plants and, and form large branches so even the birds of the air can nest under its wings. This is a, a, a very clear allusion to the nations and to the, to the Gentiles. For those of us who remember we studied Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 17 gave, gave allusion to this. Verse 33, and with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So he was, he was, he was interpreting and explaining these to his disciples, but he wouldn't to the, to the crowds. Why did he tell them this? Why did they need to know? Why do we need to know this? Let me offer a couple things. Number one, Again, we look at our world, we look at our country, and we think, God, it's never been worse. I th- I'm not the prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I think what God has done is God has taken away the veil. 
Our country has always been like that. <laughs> Listen, this is sin. This is deception. This is sin. This is this is is has been revealed for what it really is. It's discouraging. You think they're winning. The devil's winning. It seems like the devil's winning. And I'm sure there were times when the disciples probably thought that when they got run out of town. Doubt, discouragement, unbelief. I think he was preparing them for a lack of apparent results. Again, I think of missionaries and oftentimes the pressure they feel when they report back to their to their sending agencies. They got to show results. I have a friend who's in um, northern China, uh, Chengdu, China, and they work with Tibetans in northern China. And Tibetans are uh, an oppressed, really, true oppressed people group in China. And they, uh, David has been there, and last time uh, David and Lisa were back, this was probably seven or eight years ago, we had them over to our home. And in almost 20 years of ministry there, they are only certain of two converts. Now, some missiologists would say that is a closed field leave. But they feel that's where God called them, and that's where they, 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 they endeavor to minister and to share the gospel. Now, obviously, they are greatly inhibited by the Chinese government. They're watched very closely. Um, I'm not revealing anything that I can't reveal. They're not. This is not a closed situation. Um, but sometimes they they are very discouraged from just a lack of apparent results. Who knows what God's? That's a mustard seed. That's a, that's so small you almost can't even see it. But that's like a mustard seed. They need to be encouraged. Uh, number number two, th- these kinds of things that, that that we can expect a mixed response, that we can expect growth, it'll be inexplicable, it'll be disproportionate, we, we, it'll help us to resist the temptation to manipulate the gospel to get results. We want to change the gospel so they'll walk the aisles and sign the cards and so our church can get really big. We, we, we're, there's this temptation to kind of change the message, to make it easier for them to respond. On a positive side, I think it takes the pressure off. If you look at what he's expecting them to do in all of these four parables, what what does he all the only thing he expects them to do? So that's it. Just sow the seed. Just preach the gospel. Just tell people about Jesus. That's our only responsibility. Now, talk about discipleship and all that, yes. It takes the pressure off. It just takes the pressure off. I don't have to manipulate, I don't have to craft it in a way so that they'll believe. I just know some will believe and some won't. My job is just to preach the gospel. We can focus on the three soils, uh, unfruitful soils. Or we can focus on, as I said earlier, when we go out, we don't know whom God has called. But that's not our job. Our job is to spread the seed. And he told his disciples, just preach the gospel. And you can expect, some aren't going to believe, but some will. And you may not see the results. The growth of the kingdom 
is inexplicable, but it's also disproportionate. It's exponential. And, and yeah, we can focus on how bad the world is, how bad it's looking. It seems like things are getting worse and worse and worse. Or we can say, you know what? The gospel is still germinating. The gospel around the globe is still germinating. And it's not a, it's not a big tree yet. Maybe someday it's just going to be a big tree. You see, if we don't have a preconceived timetable, another hundred years, another two hundred years, if the gospel keeps permeating and keeps growing, what what would the world be like in a hundred years? So I guess what I'm saying to us is, and I think you're saying this, don't be gloomy. Let's not be gloom and doomers. Uh, and, and I know I'm preaching to me because I'm a, I, I tend to be a gloomer and doomer. I, I I would, I'm very much of a son of thunder. I'm saying, God, just end this thing. Just burn them all up, and let's just get on with heaven. Let's just move on. Let's go. Let's get it. Let's get down. Rip the Band-Aid off. Let's go. So I'm not a gloom and doomer, really. I'm a son of thunder. Let's just, you know, let's just end this thing. But but as I've studied Mark 4, I said, you know what? There's still hope. There's still hope. God is doing something. In, 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 in our little neck of the woods, we may not see a lot. But when every time I stand up here and I look at that globe and I, I think of our missionaries and I think of that's a small representation even of what God is doing around the world. And it's a mustard seed. Maybe it's still germinating. And we haven't seen the full effect of the gospel in our world. And we know that the gospel has positive results on culture. So for disciples and for us, yeah, it's bad. And it was bad for them. They ultimately got killed for it. They were ultimately martyred for it. But they started a mustard seed of faith, a, a mustard seed of, of the gospel, of the kingdom of God. So guys, let's, we, let's not be gloom and doomers. Let's not be like me in a son of thunder. Let's believe and trust in the power of the gospel. Even though we may not see the apparent results right now. Man, if you stop and think about how many, how many times in the history of the church has, has, the, has the gospel seen this kind of extent around the world? It's growing. Uh, in fact, real quick and we'll close. Colossians. Let's turn to Colossians. This will be a good place to close. Colossians chapter 1. This is a great way to close it back. And it wasn't me, it was the Lord. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which, he's referring to the gospel, the gospel that has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. It's growing. It's inexplicable. The growth is inexplicable in the midst of so much evil and so much wickedness. But it's also disproportionate and we have to trust and believe 
not just in the power of the gospel, but in, in the extent of the gospel. Who knows? Not who knows, but another 100, 200 years? Where will the gospel be? How much will it have permeated our world? Let's pray. Father, it is so easy in our, in our day and age and all that's going on um, to become discouraged, become angry, become frustrated, and to just, just say, Lord, come Lord Jesus, let's just end it. But Father, I think that you want us to instead um, believe in the power of the gospel that we can expect your gospel to continue to grow. When you decide to come back, it, it, that's, that's you. Father, in the meantime, I pray that in the midst of, ah, good Lord, the, the, Lord our, 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 our crazy world, we would be reminded of the power of the gospel and how it is permeating our culture and permeating our world. And you know, it may not be Yet a large tree. Well, it's obviously not. But Lord, we don't know what your plans are. We don't know what your, what your purposes are in this. All we can do is be obedient and faithful farmers to plant the seed. So God, help us to not be discouraged, to help not be fearful, um, but to have faith and belief and know and trust that your gospel is going to continue to grow and increase. We are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And all of God's people said, Amen. Would you please stand?